Please silence all electronic devices. Representatives Brawley, Sane, Hastings, Martin, Setzer, and Soka are recognized. So the bottom line is, folks, there are a lot of bad people out there. I'm Elizabeth Dole, and I approve this message. You're fired! You know, the guy that used to sit in this chair had a saying, if you think everybody's good, you ain't met everybody. Any further discussion or debate? From the Museum of Natural Sciences in downtown Raleigh, it's November 9th, 2017. This is the WUNC Politics Podcast. I'm Jeff Tabiri. On this episode, election results, the two-party system, and craft beer. Joining us on the podcast is uh, what amounts to a red dot in a sea of blue. He's a special counsel at the General Assembly. Brent Woodcox is the guest. Hey, Brent, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Is it fair to call you a red dot in a sea of blue? Well, in the city of Raleigh, that may very well be so. And in some ways, though, I feel like... I'm also a blue dot in a sea of red. So, explain that. Well, I mean, you know, when where we are with the two parties right now, anyone who steps out of line, anyone who has an opinion that may be a little bit different on any issue, immediately gets branded as a traitor or an interloper or someone who doesn't belong. And I'm somebody that I feel like I have principles, and they've stayed pretty consistent. And I've, the other day, somebody told me, if you have principles and you stay pretty consistent, you're going to find yourself agreeing with people you usually disagree with, and you're going to find yourself disagreeing with people you usually agree with. Because a lot of other people change. If you stay the same, you'll see them change around you. Let's set this up as we get into uh, election talk results, General Assembly, all that. What are your guiding principles as a Republican? Well, I, I think that Republicans, for me, and the two parties— in this country have always fought about one issue in particular, more government or less government. And for the modern Republican Party, what conservative used to mean was you believe in a small, smart, efficient government. And also it's been layered on with other things, a pro-family government, a, a social policy that promotes things like families and churches and institutions. Unfortunately, we've seen those kinds of things be brought down and derided by both parties recently. Um, so, you know, essentially it's about what government does, what the proper role of government is, and how society can function uh, well and people can get along and we can have peace and prosperity. And the government plays a role in that, but not an outsized role. Tuesday night, there were no statewide elections here in North Carolina, a series of mayoral elections uh, no referendums uh, on this November ballot. Take me through just the the snapshot of where were you consuming the election? Were you were you tethered to it and watching close? You were active on Twitter as you often are. Uh, but what what was your Tuesday night like? Well, uh, Tuesday night I was alone with just me and my dog and watching election results roll in. Uh, my wife's out of town, so she didn't have to be subjected to that. Um, but I was just following along with the conversation. I always like to be a part of the conversation on Twitter, maybe too much so sometimes, but. Uh, and just particularly looking at what was happening in Raleigh, I've just been fascinated by what that mayoral election has been over the last couple of months, but particularly since they went to that runoff stage. So Nancy McFarland, who's an unaffiliated, a progressive unaffiliated, gets another term as mayor of Raleigh. Um, and this race, I think, really highlighted some of the fractures within the progressive movement, within Democratic circles. You can pick it up from there. But what were your main take? I mean, McFarland won. She beat Charles Francis. But I think, as you've pointed out on Twitter, he's he's going to be back. I mean, this isn't the end of his political effort. He'll run again for office someday, most likely. I mean, not reading the tea leaves. But what uh, what were your main takeaways from the Raleigh mayoral race? Well, I thought that uh, 
Charles Francis ran a very strong campaign, and he and he spoke to issues that over the last three or four cycles really haven't been spoken to that much. I mean, you saw that um, he was talking about what's going on in East Raleigh and what the resources of the city are and why there's income inequality there and, and what are the affordable housing requirements that really exist and are we truly doing something about it or are we talking a lot more than we're actually building? Um, and so I thought that that was, that was an interesting campaign. Now, I think what was unfair and I think what some people responded to is that Mayor McFarland didn't create those problems. I mean, Raleigh is still a largely segregated city in its neighborhoods, but that's not because of Mayor McFarland. I mean, there's inequality in Raleigh. In fact, from what I've seen, we're one of the top five cities for inequality. But one of the reasons for that is a lot of people move here who need opportunity. They need a job. They they have a relocation where they feel like Raleigh is a place that's a good place to live and a good place to work. And so that leads to inequality because people are getting in on the ground floor. But that doesn't mean that they don't they don't necessarily have the opportunity. What we need to do is make sure that people aren't locked in where they enter and that there's there's that mobility. And I think that's what Charles Francis was speaking to. And I hope that that conversation continues in Raleigh. As a Republican, are there proposals or policy efforts that you have gotten behind, would get behind in terms of dealing with upward mobility, dealing with inequality or or wage uh, discrepancies? What is it that you think Raleigh needs from a policy standpoint? Well, I think from a resources standpoint, you have to look at what is the city doing to create the workforce that we need? How are we retraining or training people for the first time for the city that we want to build? And, you know, we have a burgeoning tech industry, a lot of startups, but I wonder if folks who may be interested in that are really being able to get connected with the kinds of training opportunities, the information and the education that they need to do that. Um, the other thing is it's hard to to have mobility if you don't have a good starting point. And a good starting point starts with affordable housing. It starts with a good school. It starts with a community that is safe for you and your children. And so focusing on those basic issues is something that's important in Raleigh. And I feel like it's a very exciting time in the city. It's a time where we're growing. We're seeing a lot of development. We're seeing an influx of population. And we're seeing a lot of uh, new opportunities arise for the city but we can't neglect the basics, the things that the city is supposed to do that, that helps the residents. What surprises were there to you from North Carolina on Tuesday night, if any? Well, you know, I, the biggest surprise for me was B.J. Murphy losing in Kinston. I didn't see that coming, and I'm not, very, I'm not extremely plugged into politics of Kinston, but it seemed like B.J. Murphy was doing a good job. B.J. Murphy is a young relatively moderate Republican. That's correct. Right. And, and, and he lost. He's a pro-development, let's kind of revitalize this small town and turn it into a destination again. And they've had great successes down there. Um, and for whatever reason, the tide turned on him. And I don't know if that had to do with his personal politics or things that were going on in Kinston, or it just was when you put a D and an R on, on the labels in 2017, that's going to be a real headwind that an R is facing. I think the biggest takeaways from Virginia, or maybe not the biggest takeaways, but the uh, race that got the most attention was certainly the uh, the Northam-Gillespie race in Virginia. There was another gubernatorial race in New Jersey. There was this Medicaid uh, expansion question, a referendum in Maine. And then there were, uh, I think the biggest surprise, at least to me, and I'll ask you about your biggest surprise, the biggest surprise to me was the number of seats Democrats picked up in the House of Delegates in Virginia. They went from 
being on the wrong end of a supermajority to, depending on recounts as we uh, tape this on a Thursday morning, possibly having a majority. I don't know if that has been finalized yet, but it was a big night for Democrats. Um, what did you make of, of of the national race, not the national races, but across the nation? What did you make of the races from Tuesday? What What stood out to you? Well, I mean, one thing that stood out to me is it seemed like Republicans learned all the wrong lessons from Donald Trump being elected. I mean, Ed Gillespie was not someone who should have run a campaign based on Confederate monuments. Not only is that, in my opinion, not the right thing to do, but it's also just Ed Gillespie was a known quantity in Virginia. He couldn't disguise himself and reinvent himself. He was a part of the establishment. Right. And he should have run as an establishment mainstream Republican, Which, somebody who right. was different. I mean, whoever gave him the advice that he needed to be more Trump-like, Trump lost Virginia by five points. Gillespie had lost by less than one point to Mark Warner, an incumbent senator, just three years earlier. He needed to be less Trump-like, not more Trump-like. There was this, I think, one of the narratives that emerged quickly, uh, certainly out of the New York Times, I saw this, you know, by 11 o'clock on, on, on Tuesday night, was that the nation was offering a sharp rebuttal to Trump, that this was the, the first rebuke to Trump. Is that fair or, or is, is, that a, is this a little too situational to make that read? Well, there's always a little bit more nuance than goes on in the mainstream narrative. But I, I think that you, when you see something like in Virginia where turnout increased, I think Something like there were about eight hundred to nine hundred thousand voters the last gubernatorial election, and in this gubernatorial election they had one point four million. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you see that kind of change in right. turnout, something is driving that that's that's abnormal. Yes, Virginia has been a blue state, and it's been a blue state for a while, and it seemingly is trending a little bit more blue by the election. And New Jersey, Chris Christie winning in New Jersey was an anomaly. I mean, it's not normal for New Jersey to have a Republican governor. Um, So a return to what kind of the baseline politics of those states are is not surprising. And the president in that first election afterwards often loses, even if the president is popular. So when the president's popularity rating is under 40 percent, you're going to expect to see a lot of losses in state legislatures and and potentially in Congress in 2018 if things don't turn around. Take me through the nuance of whether two candidates in the party at this point need to divorce itself, themselves, from the president or double down and triple down with him. I mean, some of this is situational, right? I mean, Mark Meadows, Congressman Mark Meadows' district is going to vary greatly uh, than some more purple congressional districts. I don't know if we really have any of those. Or say Pittenger's district, the ninth, or uh, Holding D- District, the second. How, where's that line for you in terms of uh, continuing to support the president or campaign with the president and take some of these hardline approaches on immigration and Confederate monuments, uh, as opposed to just totally denouncing him, walking away and saying, we're going back to the way it has been for Republicans for decades? Well, I think you have to learn the right lessons from from the 2016 Trump campaign. Um And one of those is I think voters do appreciate authenticity. I mean, authenticity can sometimes be a bad thing for Donald Trump. Sometimes he's a little too authentic, if you ask me. But I think that people are tired of the same old, same old kind of buttoned-down politician with the 30-second soundbite. They like somebody that's off the cuff and tells it like it is. But that doesn't mean that voters are willing to support candidates who want to flirt with white nationalism. I mean, we've moved beyond that for many decades. Right. And the idea that people are going to get off their couch and vote because you want to criticize Colin Kaepernick, 
It just doesn't move voters. I mean, you may not even necessarily be in the minority with the opinion. You may be in the majority with the opinion. But it's not something that gets people out to vote. And so focusing on issues that matter, pocketbook issues, and hopefully tax reform and the, and the change in D.C.'s focus to tax reform will help bring them back to this. But you've got to explain to people what you're doing, how it's going to make their lives better, and you've got to do it in a way that they believe you. And that's where that authenticity comes in. Local, state, federal, who is a, a, a fresh candidate? Who is somebody that doesn't have that button-down approach from a conservative standpoint who you think is, I don't know, a rising star? Or maybe it's not somebody who's run for political office before. Uh, talking about characters that, that you think would fare well in the mold of what perhaps some of the good was from the, the, the 2016 Trump candidacy. You know, I, I, it's hard for me to name a name. I will say that I think that there's a profile of someone who um, is not necessarily involved in politics, but is somebody that's respected in the community, a business person, a lawyer, a doctor. I think that you're seeing a lot of people get involved in politics, and I've seen this at the General Assembly, who don't come from a political background or who aren't lawyers. But they, they can see the forest from the trees, and, that, and they have success with their constituents because they say, hey, you know, I didn't come from a political background but I'm somebody that's wise, that's going to make good decisions, and is going to stand on a principle. I think that really that millennials are going to have this opportunity as they age into running for political office themselves. And we've seen a number of millennial candidates that are already successful. But we're a generation that is authentic, that is constantly sharing on social media, that is unedited, that wants to be a part of the conversation. And, you know, whereas decades a decade ago maybe you could get in trouble for something that you did on social media you could get in trouble for a picture that came out about you when you were a young person i think that we're more forgiving of that kind of stuff and we would rather somebody be who they authentically are and we get to decide on their character ourselves and not just necessarily disqualify people because of one mistake sure Brett Woodcox is the guest here on the WNC Politics Podcast. He is a uh, special counsel for the General Assembly. He works on redistricting, which is one thing we will not talk about today because there is ongoing litigation. That's your request. It's a reasonable one, seems to me, as it's uh, as it's moving forward. Many redistricting challenges are out there. We're talking about elections, uh, the results from this week, the two-party system. Um, you, you've straight up denounced President Trump on um, social media before. Is that is, Can I use that word? Is that fair? Was, was denounced? denounced too I, strong? Well, look, I, I, I haven't been, I haven't kept it a secret that I think Donald Trump is an existential threat to the Republican Party. I think that he's tearing us away from the principles that matter, the things that drew me to the Republican Party in the first place, and a lot of times I don't feel at home there. And as somebody told me the other day, I can't really escape it because I may be ashamed of my family, but I'm still in a family. And and the Republicans got me out to the polls, got me interested in politics in the first place. And it would be silly for me to say that I'm going to change my loyalty. I've stayed the same. If the Republican Party leaves me, then I guess we'll see. That's a denouncement. Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, I asked somebody this recently and kind of a generic uh, barstool question. But 10 years from now, do you think we're more likely – to see a clear divide within the Republican Party into two parties, or are we going to see that on the left with, with the Democrats and the progressives? Where is it more likely that we're going to see a, a clear fracture? I think both. And and here's the reason why, because I've been thinking about this a little bit recently. 
in our culture, you're seeing factionalism in just about everything that we do. What kind of soda you drink, what gym you go to, what series you binge on Netflix. We have factionalism. We have so few shared experiences in our culture right now. What kind of news you consume, obviously, is something that divides people in politics. And the idea that the two-party system is going to be able to withstand that and that there won't be multiple factions within these parties, I think, is silly. In fact, I don't think it's true now. As Speaker Ryan said the other day, that we basically have a proportional representation-like system. It's just that they're all falling under one-tenth. Um, And you're seeing a lot of uh, fights between activists on both sides about where the party should go. And you're seeing people find ways to power that aren't through the traditional structure. I mean, a person like Mark Meadows is very powerful in Congress, but he's not the speaker. Mm -hmm. So it's not the traditional power structure, but it's something different. Do we need leaders to bring the collective masses back toward the middle? And if so, who are those leaders? I think that you need people who understand the political process and understand how things get done and can make the compromises that are necessary, but you need somebody that can actually appeal and is willing to appeal to the middle. It's a scary thing to do because you've got, let's say, one-third of the country are Democrats, one-third are Republicans, and there are probably one-third who don't feel at home in either party. And it might not necessarily be exactly that split, but just for hypothetical purposes. Appealing to that one-third who you don't know who they're going to vote for, or even if they will vote, is scary for a politician. But the truth is, those people are making the decisions in this country. I mean, it's not one party that can do that. We're swinging back and forth wildly between the two sides, and we need some leaders that will step forward and say, actually, we need to be about the center and we need to find ways that we can bridge the gap. And not all of the other side's ideas are stupid. And some of those things do need to be addressed. And maybe we have different ways of addressing them. And that's why we have elections. But we need to move forward and actually have progress. Give me a Republican or a Democrat who you think could be part of that narrative either in the General Assembly or from North Carolina's congressional delegation? Um, Well, I mean, I think that people in the General Assembly don't get enough credit for what who they are and what they do. I think that Senator Berger, for instance, and I'm not just saying this because I work for him, but he's somebody that actually does grapple with issues, that he cares about inequality. He cares about poverty. He came from a background where he had to work his way up. He didn't start from wealth. And every decision that he makes has something to do with that. I think that, uh, you know, I have relationships with a lot of people in the General Assembly. I think that Joel Ford is somebody who is actually trying to do the right thing. And he lives in a nuanced world where there are difficult issues and there are many things that he and I disagree on. Mm -hmm. But I think that he's somebody that is really trying to do what's right and try to be a productive part of the conversation and not just tear down but build up because he believes that what's good for the state is is something that he should be fighting for. 22nd bio on Ford, if you don't know, state senator from Mecklenburg County, unsuccessful bid for uh, mayor down in uh, the Queen City earlier this year, also an African-American uh, and a relatively moderate Democrat as they go these days. I mean, Did I screw any of that it's, up? That's, I mean, that's, <laughs> it's hard for anybody to be labeled a moderate, and I'm sure he wouldn't want to be labeled a moderate. And I may have 
a relatively moderate Democrat. <laughs> by by saying today's. nice things about him, I may have actually <laughs> caused problems for him. But um, what are you up to here on the podcast? <laughs> I think that, but I think that having people who may be a little bit different than your um, just typical politician from that tribe is good. And, and I think that having somebody who's willing to stand out and say, I want to work with the other side. I think that it's productive. I think that the only way forward is for us to work with the other side. I, I, I know it's hard for party activists to hear, but it is a reality. Um, and it's something that both sides really need to, to need to be doing. You can follow him on Twitter at Brent Woodcox, B-R-E-N-T-W-O-O-D-C-O-X. Uh, when was the last time you thought about running for public office? Um, probably the last time my wife slapped me across the face and told me to forget about it. I mean, I've thought about running for public office many times. Uh, in this current environment, being involved in politics, I mean, to be frank, just sucks a little bit. Yeah. And um, the idea that I'm going to go out there and be torn down the way that people get torn down right now in politics is, is a little bit daunting. Um, you didn't I, think about it a little bit on Tuesday night as you were watching I mean, this? a little bit. I, but, I, you know, I like fighting for ideas. I don't like fighting people. I mean, it's weird to say and it's something that politics pervades my life, but I don't really even like politics that much. <laughs> that makes I like, no sense. I like the ideas. I like policy, and our politics aren't really about policy anymore. Sure. They're not about ideas. They're about identity. And I think that's a cancer to our current political system. I think it divides us. I think it, it makes progress on nearly any issue impossible when anyone who works with the other side or has a common idea is labeled a traitor. And it's it's difficult to even think about entering the environment. But, you know, it, you do at some point think, well, if I don't do it, who will? I can't keep calling for leaders who are willing to do this and not be willing to step up to the plate myself. Change, I think, can happen certainly from the top down with leadership, with policy, but also from the bottom up in many ways, as we've seen with a, a litany of issues. You're a thoughtful person. How do you think we collectively can can better engage? As as people who vote, as people who are conservative or liberal, and you know, I, I think of us as being the collective us, not you and I, but the, the collective us being in little circles, whether they're bubbles on social media or bubbles within our family or our, our professional group. People, it seems to me, are not talking to each other uh, as frequently enough or as uh, with perhaps as thoughtful or uh, as much of an open mind or uh, a collegial tone as they should. Are, are there just like uh, things that you think we should do or can do that yeah, I, would enhance You it. know, what I think has helped me to uh, to gain other people's perspectives. So pick up a book that you disagree with the author. I, like I'm reading ta Coates right now, and there are a lot of things that I disagree with, but what he's fundamentally talking about in history is something that matters, and it's a context that I otherwise don't have access to because that's not coming from my community. Mm -hmm. And so... I it, to to do that. I mean, you have to read people who you disagree with, watch news programs that you feel like they're biased against your side. You know, go on Twitter or Facebook and follow people who you disagree with, who are on the other side, and engage with their ideas. Don't just fight them, but consider it, and 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 ask yourself: Are their motives truly terrible, or at the bottom are we kind of going after the same thing? 
and maybe we just have different ways of getting there. Because when you when you give people the benefit of the doubt and you say, they're probably not evil. They probably actually want to do something good, and I just disagree with the way they're getting there. Um, and then the other thing, I mean, the major thing that people could do that would make politics a lot better is start voting in primaries. Because until people who aren't hardcore party activists start voting in primaries, we're not going to see moderate or centrist parties, we're going to see extreme parties. Which is what we've seen since 2010. Elevation of the Tea Party and just this this run to the to the opposite poles. Is it not? I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, I think you've seen the populist movement kind of go through both parties. I mean, you've seen the Bernie Sanders campaign and the Donald Trump campaign, and, and those are they're two sides of a different... or different sides of one coin, really. And so I, I think that... You know, both parties, the incentives are all in becoming more and more extreme. Would you be in favor of a a mandate to vote, the risk of a fine if you didn't vote? You know, I think that it's important to maintain a freedom in this country, which is a freedom to not participate. I know that sounds silly, but I, I mean, if you opt out, if you just feel like I can't vote for either candidate, which is what I did in the 2016 presidential election. I didn't want either either of those people to be president, so I didn't vote for anybody. You voted, but not in that race. But not in that race. And so, I, you know, I wouldn't be in support of a fine, but I am in support of shaming people who don't vote. <laughs> Do you watch Fox News? No, I haven't watched Fox News in years. I just, to me... They're not even engaging in the conversation. I mean, when when you flip on the Tuesday night election results, as soon as things start to go negative for Republicans, they start talking about Hillary Clinton again. I mean, it's like I want to if I'm going to watch the news, I don't want to hear a cheering section. I want to hear denial. I want to hear what's going on in the news. And I may disagree with some of the commentators that are on on television. And I watch very little cable news, honestly. Um, But I at least want to hear what's going on in the conversation. Do you read Huffington Post? Uh, if I see something interesting on Twitter, I'll click. Couple to uh, get Brent Woodcocks out of here on unrelated, I think unrelated to politics, but maybe it'll turn back because everything seems to these days. Uh, a flight of beer, any five beers, they must be North Carolina beers. What are you going with in your flight? Oh, gosh, that's I'm a really good question. Totally throwing you on the spot with that. You didn't know that was coming. <laughs> so you, you think about it for a second. Um and I, I, I really can't BS through any other beer talk other than to. Um, <laughs> so, um, how about we just limit it to Raleigh because okay, I, uh, you I don't want to, I don't want to offend anybody, and I love Raleigh, and and so I'm gonna go trophy, trophy wife. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go with uh, trophy wife IPA, or it's a pale ale, pale ale. Thank and, you. Uh, and then those guys just do excellent, excellent beer. I. Um, I'm going to go Raleigh Brewing. Hell yes, ma'am. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Noose River, Three Feathers. I'm going to go with Linwood, um, Hop on Top. And I need one. I haven't had Three Feathers. I'll have to check that out. It's, it's a good beer. And uh, I'm trying to think. Let's let's go with uh, Big Boss, Aces and Eights. Okay. Those are those are five good ones. Can you run them back again one more time concisely? So I, I sent... Trophy, Trophy Wife, Raleigh, Hell Yes, Ma'am. I had uh, Linwood Hop on Top. I had Noose River, Three Feathers. And I had Big Boss, Aces and Eights. And that's a pretty diverse flight. It is. It's a lot of great Raleigh breweries, and there's just a lot of great beer to be had here, honestly. 
I believe there are now 216, maybe. There, there are north of 200 breweries in the state. I looked at it a couple weeks ago. I want to say it's like 215, 216 now. Uh, more wait breweries. a couple weeks, there'll be three There more, will be 220, 225, <laughs> right. Uh, all right, the beer question and this one. Uh, college basketball starts this week. If you could go to any one college basketball game this season, what is it? it, it regular season, not Final Four, uh, a, a postseason tournament, anything like that. Well, I'm a Tar Heel, and I'm never going to – uh, renounce the Duke Carolina rivalry. I actually had the opportunity to go to both of those schools, but I will never renounce my allegiance to the Heels. So, I mean, going to to Carolina and Duke in the Dean Dome is, I mean, it's a it's a great experience. You went to both, or you had the opportunity to go to both? No, I I, I was a Carolina undergrad, and then I went to Duke for law school. Okay. So. My father-in-law, quick story, uh, went to Carolina undergrad. He was a Moorhead scholar and uh, applied to three medical schools, Johns Hopkins, Duke, and Carolina. He went to Carolina, and I asked him about it at one point, and I said, Bill, you applied to Duke Medical School? He goes, yeah, just in case there was ever any doubt about whether or not I could get in. (laughs) I said, so you just applied merely to get the acceptance? He goes, exactly. He was never going. Um, So Brent Woodcox is a special counsel for the General Assembly. He works on redistricting issues. He's a politico. Uh, here in Raleigh, you can find him on Twitter at Brent Woodcox. That's C-O-X at the end of Woodcox. Brent, thanks for the conversation. Thanks. I really love your podcast, and I appreciate being a part of the conversation. You can download the podcast at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever it is that you find public radio or other podcasts, political in any type. And uh, you can stay up to date on what's happening in uh, North Carolina politics, hashtag NCPaul at our website. WUNC.org. For Brent, I'm Jeff. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. And the children age and the love we share.